to Yo and Yo's podcast. We've had the privilege of advising Michigan businesses for over 95 years, and we want to share our knowledge with you, covering tax, accounting, technology, financial, and advisory topics relevant to you and your business. Yo and Yo's podcast is hosted by industry and subject matter experts, where we go beyond the beans. So if you want to stay in the know about business issues and trends that affect you, then keep listening because this is Everyday Business with Yo and Yo. Hi, I'm your host, Dave Jewell, Principal and Tax Service Line Leader at Yo and Yo. Welcome to this episode of Everyday Business, where today we're going to dive into a topic and try to unpack it for you that didn't exist six months ago. Today, we're gonna to be talking about the Paycheck Protection Program, or PPP loans. Joining me today are two fantastic managers in our firm who have really taken the initiative to understand PPP loans, and they both are serving on our PPP loan forgiveness team that we've formed to help assist clients through this process, Zara Basha and Rachel Van Slumbrook. So Zara and Rachel, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks for having us, Dave. All right. Well, as we know, 2020 has been an absolutely crazy year. Uh, I don't think at the beginning of the year that we could have predicted or thought or had a nightmare that the year was going to turn out the way that it has. Uh, Generally, during tax season, we are knee-deep in tax returns. March and April are usually spent at the office with lots and lots of hours, and we are tax-focused. This year, it seems like in late March, we were all at home basically, uh, working from home. And instead of doing tax returns, we spent a lot of our time consulting and unpacking this PPP loan program and helping clients through that process. So uh, looking forward to a great discussion with the two of you today and uh, helping our clients and our listeners and our friends uh, understand more about the PPP program, uh, some of the details of that program and uh, some of the forgiveness opportunities that hopefully they can take advantage of as we coming to the end of the year here. So I'm going to turn it over to Rachel now. And Rachel, why don't you just give us a little bit of a, take us on a walk down memory lane here as to what the PPP program, how it started, what uh, the criteria were to apply for a loan and kind of what that looks like. Just uh, start us off here. Yeah, the PPP loan was initially created by the U.S. Treasury and um, administered by the SBA in order to loan money to small businesses and in order to maintain their employees and avoid layoffs and salary reductions. So they could potentially have the funds partially or fully forgiven if they use those funds for payroll costs and for certain operating expenses like mortgage interest, rent, and utilities. Small businesses could apply for up to $10 million in funds and small businesses typically meant 500 or less employees, which fits within the SBA size standards. That's what what they consider a small business. That could also include 501c3s, sole proprietors, independent contractors, and self-employed individuals. There were special rules for companies in the accommodation and food service sectors. In their case, they allowed the 500 employee rule to be applied on a per physical location method. So if you're wondering how companies like Five Guys or TJ Fridays ended up with millions of dollars, that is how. Um, Another requirement was you had to have been in business as of February 15th, 2020. And then to calculate the amount borrowed, 
you would look at your average monthly payroll costs. So in most cases, you would look at your 2019 calendar year payroll costs and multiply it by two and a half. And that's how you would get your loan amount. Again, that was capped at $10 million per company. Um, or for a self-employed individual, you would calculate based on two and a half time of your or two and a half times of your net income or self-employment income. The loan information, um, payments are deferred for, it was six months, now it's 10 months on anything that's not forgiven. So I said, you know, that loan would be partially or fully forgiven. If it was partially forgiven, the amount not forgiven would be due or would start to be due after those 10 months. And it's at a 1% interest rate. So really, if you think about it, even if you have funds that you didn't use for those payroll costs or, or if it wasn't going to be forgiven, the 1% interest is really not a bad deal if you have to pay it back. And then the payment period, if your loan was issued before June 5th, it would be due in two years. And if it was issued after June 5th, it would be five years. Um, just a little bit about the first and second rounds of PPP, because as we know, there was a first round. And then on June, Zahar, do you remember the date that the... Yeah, so the Paycheck Protection Program Flexibility Act passed on June 5th, I believe. It was signed into law. Okay, yep, so after that. So the first round, $349 billion was allocated to the PPP. That money was gone within 13 days. The second round, $310 billion was allocated, and that closed on August 8th with about $130 billion in funds left. So honestly, I think what happened there was... You know, they said it was going to be on a first come, first serve basis that first time around. Well, a lot of these large companies took up a lot of those funds early on and didn't leave many for the small businesses. Well, then come the second round, those small businesses could have applied, but their loan size is going to be way less in comparison. And now we still have funds left over. As of I believe it was August 8th is when they closed those or closed the applications. There were 5.2 million loans given out and the average loan size was about $100,000. So it sounds like there are a lot of, of loans that really helped booster and uh, uphold small businesses throughout this pandemic. So um, that's great to hear that so many small businesses were able to, to take advantage of that and uh, you know, $100,000 infusion of cash could really do a lot for for small businesses who are struggling uh, during this time of, of, here in Michigan anyway, there were a lot of, of shutdowns that were mandated by the state. And I know that that cash for a lot of my clients and for a lot of clients around the firm and probably many people listening, uh, their businesses really came in handy to to help them through a, a very uncertain time. Exactly. Uh, you know, Rachel, you, you noted in your conversation that this isn't just a straight loan, that there's an opportunity for forgiveness. And I think that's one of the points that make this, that makes this program really attractive is that if you follow some of these stated rules for how you use the funds and you use them in a certain period of time, uh, there's the opportunity to have the, the loan either completely or partially forgiven. So why don't you walk us through what some of the requirements are for loan forgiveness? So initially when that PPP loan came out the first time, we were all under the impression that it was going to be an eight-week covered period. So what that meant was businesses had eight weeks to use those funds on payroll costs and those operating expenses that I said were mortgage interest, utilities, and rent. Those 
operating expenses, all those agreements had to be in place before February 15th um, in order for those to count towards the costs. And then initially, 75% uh, of the funds had to be used for payroll costs because, again, the purpose of this is to maintain employees and you know, they didn't want companies just to be using these funds strictly for their rent expense or, you know, whatever else there could be. Any EIDL grant that they had applied for, because a lot of companies were applying for that at the same time, that would have to be subtracted off the forgiveness amount. And then we knew that the employee count needed to be maintained. I will say we didn't initially have a lot of information on what that meant. But we knew that that was the whole point was to keep employees on payroll. So to be aware of that. Um, at that time, we knew that the employee account had to be restored to pre-COVID levels by June 30th. That is no longer the case now. It's December 31st. But there are some other recent updates that we can go through as well. Yes, I think one of the things that when Treasury first released this and released the requirements, there were a lot of open questions that still had not been addressed. And we had a lot of, I know personally, I had a lot of clients that they got this loan and then they were figuring, okay, how can I spend all of this money on payroll or other uh, proper costs or, you know, allowable costs in an eight week period? It really Put them on kind of a crunch. So I think Treasury heard the, the screaming loud and clear. So why don't you tell us what happened on June 5th with the Payroll Protection Program Flexibility Act and what some of the changes were that came out as part of that legislation? Sure. Yeah. So on June 5th, the Paycheck Protection Program Flexibility Act passed. And what that meant was that eight-week period was now extended to 24 weeks to use the funds. So like you said, that helps a lot of companies who are stressing out trying to figure out how they're going to use their funds for payroll, especially with you know that 75% threshold by those eight weeks. Not only that, they also reduced the percent needed for payroll costs to be 60%. So it went down from that 75% to the 60%. And initially, or under the impression that that 60% was a cliff. So if you don't use 60%, that it's just going to, you're not going to be forgiven at all. However, we have learned since then that's not the case. So it's not a cliff. It's the same as it was before, where you just need to use 60% of the funds for payroll costs in order for it to be fully forgiven. If not, you could still receive partial forgiveness. Another thing that came out with that was exceptions to FTE counts. So like I said, we knew that we were going to need to maintain employee counts. Well, a lot of companies had been dealing with employees on unemployment, for example, and not wanting to come back to work. In those cases, they allowed an exception where they can document that they reached out to this employee, asked them to come back to work, and they refused. Those are not going to count towards the FTE count, so it will not hurt your forgiveness amount. Um, another thing was initially companies who received the PPP were not allowed to defer Social Security taxes like other companies had been. Um, they came out and said they are now allowed to defer that Social Security tax payment until I believe it's 2021. Yeah, I think it's uh, they can pay half of it at the end of 2021 and then 
half of it at the end of 2022. Okay. Yeah, so I think the Flexibility Act really provided exactly what it says in the title, a lot of flexibility for clients, right? Um, instead of having to cram payroll maybe with a reduced staff into eight weeks, the covered period changed to 24. So that was good. The reduction in having to use 75% of the costs on payroll was reduced down to 60. And we saw that with a lot of businesses, especially those that were shut down during periods of time. That was the question is that my business by state mandate has been shut down. So how am I supposed to use these funds for payroll costs. And so just the flexibility that was provided by the uh, the act signed on June 5th, uh, that really helped a lot of clients. And I think that was a, a good move by by Treasury. Yeah. Opinion. Yep. And I would agree with that. And another thing that they did with that was now they have until, like I said earlier, they have until December 31st to restore their workforce to pre-COVID levels. So I think that helps as well. Yeah, I think it really gives business an opportunity to get their feet back underneath them and still have the best opportunity to have most, if not all, of the loan forgiven. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, thanks, Rachel. That's that's a good update, and it kind of tees up some of the detail that we're going to get into now in our conversation. So uh, let's turn it over to Zar, and I think you're going to walk us through some of the details on forgivable expenses. So I'll turn it over to you, Zar. Thanks, Dave. Yeah, one of the issues and one of the reasons why the Flexibility Act was passed was after the PPP loans were rolled out, there was a lot of, there was not a lot of clarity on what expenses could be forgiven, um, what what expenses qualified for forgiveness, how it qualified, how you would calculate those expenses. Um, so at, around the time the Flexibility Act passed, there was some guidance that came out from the SBA and the Treasury that clarified how the expenses were calculated, what expenses or costs were included. So it's essential, they were essentially divided or categorized into two types of expenses. Um, there's payroll costs, and that's divided into two subcategories, which is your normal cash compensation. Uh, they defined it as including uh, wages, tips, bonuses, hazard pay. And then the second type of payroll cost was your health care costs and your retirement benefits. Uh, the payroll costs, as it was with when applying for the loan, the forgivable costs also are capped at 100,000 per employee prorated over the covered period. Uh, so if it's an eight week period, each employee is capped at 15,385. Uh, if it's a 24 week period, each employee is capped at about 46,000. The other thing the guidance provided was the ability for any employer with a biweekly period or a more often or more frequent payroll period and biweekly could choose to elect to use an alternative payroll period. Uh, one of the issues they were running across was a lot of people got their loans in the middle of their payroll period. Uh, so it was going to cause some administrative burden and confusion on calculating partial period payroll reports. Um, so they gave the option to employers to elect an alternative payroll period. So your payroll costs wouldn't start counting until the first day of your next payroll period. So if you got loans, loan funds on April 5th, and that's a Wednesday, you could elect to start the calculation that next Monday if that's your next payroll period date. Uh, they also clarified that forgivable costs included both incurred and paid expenses. So it wasn't incurred and paid, it was or paid. 
Um, so if you incurred payroll before you got the loan funds and paid it during your eight or 24 week period, those could be included in your forgivable pay. And it also gave you an opportunity that if you incurred payroll at the end of your 24 weeks, but paid it by your next payroll date, you could also include those payroll costs in the calculation um, when you apply for forgiveness. Uh, the second category of payroll costs was the healthcare costs and retirement benefits. So as part of the payroll costs, they also clarified that owner employees have different restrictions and different caps on payroll costs. Um, the SBN Treasury were concerned that some employers who had minimum or no payroll in the past could all of a sudden pay themselves um, large salaries or large bonuses and include those in the forgivable amounts. Uh, so for owner employees, so any owner that also gets um, wages in 2020, all of their forgivable costs will be based on their 2019 cash compensation. And those amounts will be further capped for 24 weeks. Instead of being capped at the 46,000 amount, it'll be capped at the $20,833 amount, which is based on the two and a half months of payroll that they applied for. Uh, the second category of payroll costs are the healthcare costs and retirement benefits. The SBA and Treasury clarified that those were only the employer portion of the costs. So if an employee contributed towards their health insurance, those would not be included. It's only the amounts that the employer actually paid. Uh, similar to payroll costs, that includes both incurred or paid. They also clarified you can't prepay future uh, healthcare benefits or retirement benefits. And then depending on the type of entity, so whether you're a C-Corp, an S-Corp, uh, self-employed or a general partner in a partnership, there are also different rules regarding how health insurance and retirement benefits, whether those are included in the capped amount or you can add to the capped amount additional expenses for health insurance and retirement benefits for owner employees. Uh, the second category is non-payroll costs. So I think as Rachel alluded to, those include the mortgage interest, uh, the rent, utilities. Uh, they also clarified those include both incurred and paid expenses. So if you got your loan at the end of May and you still hadn't paid your April rent um, and then you paid it in that 24 or eight week period, you could in also include those expenses in your loan application to forgive the PPP loan. Uh, and th then at the end of the 24 week or eight week period, if you got a bill for rent for July and your PPP loan funds or covered period ended in the middle of July. As long as you've heard that expense and paid it by the next due date of the next bill, you also got to include that expense as part of your forgivable loan amount. They clarified uh, about a week ago in the FAQs, I think Rachel had mentioned that the loan or uh, the mortgage had to be in place as of February 15th. Uh, there were some questions about whether refinanced loans or renewed leases that were renewed or refinanced after February 15th could also be included in the calculation. They clarified that, yes, as long as the original loan was in existence on February 15th, any renewed lease or any refinanced mortgage would be included in the forgivable amount. Okay, thanks for walking us through some of those steps on, on forgivable expenses and what's included and what's not. And fortunately, we got a lot of clarification as the weeks and the months went on. Uh, a lot of the things that you just clarified, we had questions on for quite some time. But uh, fortunately, the FAQs, as those continue to roll out, address those issues. A big majority of what the loan 
proceeds need to be spent on is payroll costs. Right in the name of the program, it's called the Paycheck Protection Program. Uh, so there were limits that were put in there as to how you could, or you know, levels that were put in there that uh, forgiveness would only occur if salaries and, and wages were not reduced by more than 25%. Uh, the government did not want employers to be able to slash a bunch of jobs or to cut people's wages or salaries in half and still get forgiveness. So Zara, why don't you walk us through some of the technicalities of of uh, reduction um, FTEs and how that all wraps into forgiveness. Yeah, sure. So the loan application came out, the Form 3508, um, as Rachel will talk about in a little bit, the Form 3508 and 3508-EZ uh, came out and it started to clarify how the application for the loan forgiveness would work. But essentially, it's two components, essentially. The first part, they look at how much you spent on specific those specific expenses we just discussed. And then the second component, after you calculate uh, your first layer of forgivable expense, there are reductions that you could trip across as a business uh, if you reduced any of your employees' salaries or wages by more than 25%. Or as Rachel had mentioned before, if you had a reduction in FTEs, they call it, so full-time equivalent employees, um, so this is the part of the application that can get a little tricky and a little complicated. Um, the application requires you to pull payroll reports for both the covered week period and then two other periods in the past for comparable purposes. So one thing you'd want to avoid or one thing you'd want to look out for is whether any of your employees' salaries on a prorated basis or whether their hourly rates was reduced by 20, more than 25%, uh, that, could for, that could lead to part of your loan not being forgiven. Uh, and then on FTEs, one of the FAQs clarified how you calculate FTEs. Uh, there's two different methods. Um, they clarified it was based on 40 hours. So you could either take the employee's hours and divide it by 40 uh, and take all your employees and add them together and see what your FTEs are for both the covered week, the covered period, and then two previous periods. Um, or they provided a safe harbor rule where any employee that works 40 hours or more counts as one FTE, and anybody that works less than 40 hours would be half an FTE. Uh, as Rachel mentioned too, they did provide exceptions um, because they knew businesses were running across difficulties hiring people and rehiring people. Um, so as she mentioned, um, if some, if you tried to offer somebody or tried to rehire somebody and they refused your job, as long as that offer and rejection was in writing, um, you could exclude that from your FTE count. Uh, if any employee was fired for cause or they voluntarily resigned, you could exclude them from your FTE costs. Uh, they did clarify that the documents you want to keep to support those exclusions would be a written offer to rehire a written record of rejection from the employee, uh, and then any offers or job postings to off, to hire somebody with a similar skill set at a similar position. So those were helpful. The FAQs have examples of how to calculate those possible or reductions, but they can be pretty complicated, and you might want to reach out to your advisor to help you with some of those calculations. Yeah, I feel like a lot of the as things have been clarified here over the past month or two, 
some of it's pretty straightforward and, and relatively clear. Uh, the part that does seem like it's the most difficult and where there's the most to it is is the calculation of full-time equivalent employees. So uh, I think that'll be one of the stickier points as businesses go and uh, apply for forgiveness here in the future. I right, so I've kind of talked about how this program got started in the first place, what it was for, what some of the updates have been over the course of time from rollout until now, and what qualifies as a forgivable expense. Now let's talk about forgiveness. How do we apply for forgiveness? A lot of our clients have exceeded their eight-week period. A lot of our listeners probably have, uh, or if they, if they uh, are opting for the 24-week covered period, which was provided in the Flexibility Act, uh, they're probably still in the middle of it. But the thing that's on everybody's mind is I didn't take this money and expect to have to pay the whole thing back. The forgiveness was really the kicker. And so, Rachel, how do our listeners go about applying for forgiveness? Yeah, so Zahar mentioned that the Form 3508 and 3508-EZ were released by the SBA and Treasury. So that is the form that you're going to need to use to apply for forgiveness. For the 3508EZ, if you are a sole proprietor, independent contractor, or self-employed individual who had no employees, or if you did not reduce the wages of your employees by more than 25% and did not reduce the number of hours, or if you experienced reductions in business activity as a result of um, health directives related to COVID-19 and did not reduce the salaries or wages of their employees by more than 25%, you qualify for, for that 3508 easy and good for you because the form 3508 is definitely a handful. I would say reach out to your bank, reach out to your CPA. Uh, a lot of these banks and lenders have spreadsheets that they might use. So for you to enter your payroll information, your FTE information to see if you have a reduction in forgiveness, I would start there. Definitely don't be afraid to reach out to us to look over the application or to um, even fill out the application for you. It is for sure a process. I will say at this point, I think one thing I did forget to mention is that if you received your loan before June 5th, you could keep the eight weeks. So there may be certain companies who have had their eight week covered period expire and they used all their funds and they know that they're going to get forgiveness. I would say, yes, let's move forward and apply for your forgiveness. Lenders started accepting applications on August 10th. However, a lot of these companies are still in the middle of their 24 week period. They might have used their funds already, but there are still some questions that we don't have answers to yet, and Zahir will touch on that later. You have 10 months after the end of your covered period to apply for forgiveness. I know it's the, you know, you want to get them off your back, you want to get this money forgiven, but the AICPA and others are taking the standpoint of, let's just wait, let's see what additional guidance the Treasury comes out with, and we'll go from there. Yeah, and Rachel, I think a lot of banks are kind of taking that same that same viewpoint. I've received a handful of emails from some banks who have 
a few weeks ago came out and said that they were going to start accepting applications for forgiveness on August 10th. And then they've kind of reversed course. And one of the biggest SBA lenders in Michigan and kind of in the region has even come out and said, there's still so many unknowns that we're not going to open up our forgiveness portal yet. So that seems like some pretty good advice that even though everybody is in a hurry to have this off their back and not have to worry about it and get the application done, I think that advising people to wait and see how this plays out, especially in Congress as they mull over some uh, different ideas, just holding off on that for right now isn't the worst advice in the world. And I was just going to add one thing to that really quick. As part of the forgiveness application, you'll want to be one careful about one thing, uh, especially for those that got other grants or other funds from whether it's the economic injury disaster loan or HHS funds or FEMA loans or other grants. Um, the one thing banks will be looking for is whether you're double dipping in those expenses. Typically, if you qualified for a PPP expense or a PPP loan and then got an dis- in economic injury disaster loan afterwards, those payroll costs would go towards the PPP loan and then you could use other expenses towards those economic injury disaster loans, the EIDLs. Um, so you'll want to make sure to keep detailed notes or detailed spreadsheets of how each of your expenses are being applied to the different grants and loans and requirements to apply for forgiveness. Yeah, I think documentation and having your support lined up is is certainly key in this whole process. Okay, so we've talked about a lot of the clarification that we've received and what we know as of right now. Zara, what are some of the things that we still don't know and that we're waiting on guidance from Treasury on? Yeah, and I think it's important right here to say we're recording this on August 13th, 2020. One of the challenges with this program is the amount of changes that have come out. So I mean, initially on, we project finance or project expenses for a client. Um, and it seemed like the rules of the game changed every couple of weeks. We'd get a new FAQ, Congress would pass something. Um, so the rules kept changing. So as of August 13th, the open questions we're still waiting on is I think Rachel touched on this, is if you elected a 24-week covered period and you used up the funds midway through the 24-week period, so 13, 14 weeks in, you think, oh, I've already spent the funds. Uh, the SBA and Treasury have mentioned that you could apply early, but they, re- they haven't really clarified how you can apply early um, because a lot of the calculations are based on how many employees you had over the covered period So the FTE count and whether you had any salary or wage reductions, those are calculations based on your covered period. So if you have a 24-week covered period, there is no way for the bank to calculate future employee reductions in salaries or wages or future um, reductions in employee count. Um, So that's one of the big questions we're still waiting on. How do you apply early if you elected a 24-week covered period and you're not quite at the end of that 24-week covered period? Uh, there also has a main clarification. We've had a few clients who are fiscal year ends. If they took the loan and their year end is in the middle of the 24-week covered period, how do they treat forgiveness? How do they put it on their financial statements? Do they include it as a liability? Are some of the expenses non-deductible? Uh, how would that work? So that aspect of it hasn't been clarified yet as well. And then on the retirement benefits, um, though it was mentioned that you can't prepay future retirement benefits, Um, There are some that are taking the position that you could pay your 2019 retirement benefits. So some returns, if you extended your return, you have till September 15th or October 15th or November, depending on your fiscal year end or your year end, uh, to pay your SAP contributions 
and other retirement benefits, whether paying those 2019 amounts with your 2019 tax return goes towards forgiveness or not, uh, that's still unclear. Yeah, and hopefully they're hearing us loud and clear that we need sooner rather than later some guidance on these topics, especially as we have fiscal year on uh, taxpayers, clients who are coming to or who have just reached the end of their fiscal year. I know we have a handful of June 30th year ends and without guidance as to which way to go, I mean, we have to take a, a stand to take a position, but it would be helpful for Treasury to address those questions sooner rather than later so that we can provide clear guidance to clients and other people that are asking about it. Yeah, and I think one thing to clarify, I mean, this was an open question, but it was recently answered. I think Rachel mentioned that if you applied uh, before June 5th and have an eight-week covered period and you have any part that's not forgiven, um, you'd have a two-year term on that loan, and any loan after June 5th would have a five-year loan term. Uh, they, they have came out and mentioned that if the lender and the borrower both mutually agree, they can extend that two-year loan into a five-year loan. Um, just to line up with the rules after June 5th. And that makes sense. That's, in my opinion, in fairness to those who are part of the same program, but just happen to apply or receive funding at different periods of time. So that was the, that's a good change. All right, Zara, what, what else are we waiting on? Just some possible future updates that have been being kicked around in Congress. And I, I know there's some that are you know, would, would make the forgiveness process a lot easier if it came through, you know, kind of on the, the auto forgiveness that I think you'll touch on. And then also what kind of a tax surprise might some people be about ready to uh, get the bad news on if the IRS doesn't, or if you know, there's not a change on the position that the IRS has taken on uh, the non-deductibility of some of these expenses. Yeah. So I think one of the, there's a, two or three things we're still waiting on Congress to pass or to dramatically change this whole process. I think as Rachel mentioned, the average loan size was about 100,000. Um, there is a bill in Congress being currently being discussed. And I think as you've listened through this podcast, this whole process could be a little cumbersome. So this is another reason just to hold off and wait. Um, if you haven't reached the end of your covered period, um, is there's a bill being discussed in Congress that essentially any loan, um, 150,000 or below, could be auto forgiven. I think they've realized how much of a burden this is going to be on advisors, on clients, on lenders, on all these small loans, taking up a lot of administrative burden to be able to complete these applications and how long it'll take for forgiveness applications to be processed. So they've gotten an understanding that if they auto forgave any loan below 150,000, I think it could save them around 70% of the applications would be auto forgiven, but it would only forgive about 25, 30% of the actual loan funds. Um, just to show you what proportion are smaller funds versus larger funds. So that's one bill that's gaining steam in Congress but hasn't been passed yet. Another one is the original, original CARES Act, which included the provisions for the PPP loan mentioned that any PPP loan forgiveness would not become taxable income. So people were excited about that. The IRS later clarified, though, that though it's not treated as forgivable in or other income or miscellaneous income, that any expenses paid using PPP loan funds would become non-deductible. Um, so this would be one thing you'd want to be careful about, especially if you included that PPP loan funds on your profit and loss already or your income statement, 
you might pull up your profit and loss and see, oh, I have a loss of $500,000, but part of that expense is a PPP loan that's forgiven for $700,000. So as of now, any money that's used from the PPP loan to pay those expenses, as of now, those expenses are non-deductible. So essentially that $500,000 loss would be $200,000 taxable income. And that could be a shock or a surprise to clients who've decided not to pay their tax estimates because they believe they have a taxable loss. Uh, there is some discussion in Congress that because the original intent of the CARES Act mentioned that this would be a non or wouldn't be considered income and you'd still be able to deduct those expenses. Uh, the House passed a bill, I think in May, the HEROES Act, that included a provision that said any expenses that used PPP loan funds uh, to pay were tax deductible. Um, and then there have been a few Republican senators uh, that have mentioned they're on board with that as well, and it made sense. Um, so be on the lookout for any future stimulus bill or future congressional bills that would change that. Uh, it could have a big impact, so be careful around that one. Yeah, and I think just for our listeners too, Zara, that's something that makes tax planning as we head into the end of the year even more important, especially if there's no change in position on that, because like you said, in the CARES Act, when it was stated that these loans were not going to be treated as taxable income, and then the IRS in that notice clarified that any funds that are used, any PPP funds that are used that are forgiven would be, those expenses would be non-deductible. Well, a non-deductible expense essentially means that what you spent is, you know, it's going to be taxed, is treated as taxable income. Uh, I mean, that's going to have, that's going to be a very unwelcome surprise, especially with the size of some of these loans, uh, you know, especially those those clients or those taxpayers who didn't just get 50,000 or 70,000, that could be a big impact for, for certain taxpayers as well. But there's some where the loan amounts were a million, $2 million, $3 million, and they were all used on payroll. And so they're going to be forgiven. And to have a reversal kind of, of, of phantom income, if you will, of $3 million when you're not expecting it, that's going to be a rude surprise for some people. So advanced planning, I think, is the key as we head into the end of this year. Yeah, I agree. And one thing I ran across a couple of days ago was there were some temp tax planners that were discussing because wages are also a consideration for other deductions. So like the qualified business income deduction that was part of the TCGA in 2017, a lot of those limitations or calculations are based on payroll costs or your wages right. salaries paid. So if all of a sudden half those expenses or a portion of those expenses are non-deductible, does that also mean your QBI deductions get reduced? Yeah, it can make a huge difference. Yeah, exactly. And then I think the last thing that Congress has mentioned as part of this next stimulus bill, there have been some people that have discussed possibly a second round of PPP loan funds. So people, people that got an initial PPP loan fund they haven't specified the size of the business or the employee count, but some of the smaller businesses could actually get a second PPP loan. Um, so we'll see what happens in Congress right now. It looks like it's stalemated, but we're hoping for news in the upcoming weeks. Good. Well, this is a great conversation. Uh, anything that we didn't mention that we need to, to bring up, Zara or Rachel, or do you think we, we gave our listeners everything and then some to, to chew on? 
Yeah, and I think just, you know, how important it is, like you said, for tax planning and for, you know, to see what Congress does, um, to see what the Treasury comes out with. I think it's just important to be patient, to talk to your advisor and figure out a plan. I just think it's super important not to rush into this. There's a lot of things going on and it could be a, a huge impact on you and your business. Yeah, yeah more, to, more to come. Yeah, I agree. I mean, based on the last few months with things changing, it almost seems weekly or every other week. I mean, there could still be a lot more to change. So um, unless you elected an eight week covered period and you know 100% will be forgiven, I think the prudent thing would be to hold off for now and just wait on guidance and stay in touch with your lenders and your advisors to keep up to date with any new or updated changes. Yeah, I agree. I think communication is the key between you and, and your advisory team. Absolutely. Well, Zara and Rachel, thanks so much for your insight on PPP loans and the program as a whole and kind of where we started, where we're at and where we're going. If you're interested in learning more about PPP loans, visit yoandyo.com where you can find a copy of our show notes and additional resources. Thank you to everyone who joined us today. I'm Dave Jewell, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of Everyday Business with Yo and Yo. Thank you for tuning in to Yo and Yo's Everyday Business Podcast. Yo and Yo's podcast can be listened to on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and of course, our website. Please subscribe, rate, and review. For more business insights, visit our resource center at yoandyo.com and be sure to subscribe to our newsletters. We'll talk to you next time on Yo and Yo's Everyday Business Podcast. The information provided in this podcast is believed to be valid and accurate on the date it is first published. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the podcast reflect the views of the speakers. This podcast does not constitute tax, accounting, legal, or other business advice or an advisor-client relationship. Before making any decision or taking action, you should consult with a professional regarding your specific circumstances.